Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello, my name is Christian Byrne and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Gemma Payson. Gemma is the Director of Equine Behaviour at the Horse Trust and is currently based at the Dick Vet um, in the University of Edinburgh. She also acts as the Veterinary Liaison Officer for the International Society for Equitation Science, uh, ISIS. Um, really pleased to have Gemma join us today. I think she's there's sort of nobody better to speak to us on a, on a topic like this. Um, and specifically, she's going to be discussing her um, EVE Early View article talking about uh, difficult horses, prevalence approaches to management of and understanding of how they develop by equine veterinarians. Uh, and that was published with her colleagues at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you very much for joining us today, Gemma. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, so we, it's obviously a, a, a sort of an interesting topic to discuss, um, but in, we'll get started, I guess, um, by discussing a bit of the background about the study. What prompted you to uh, undertake this specific study? So I undertook this study as part of my master's degree when I was doing my residency. And I was very aware anecdotally of vets being injured by horses and, you know, how well vets understood learning theory but a lot of this was not documented so initially my plan was to really look at you know the frequencies of injuries to equine vets and just as I was designing the study Beaver announced they were doing this through Tim Parkin's group um, and I'm actually really glad they did initially I was worried mm-hmm. that you know I wouldn't have anything but actually they did it on a, a slightly different way to what I looked at and they certainly did much more epidemiological evaluation so I think the two studies complement each other. That's great. Yeah, really interesting. I think a lot of us will be aware of the the work that Beaver did on that. And obviously there's been quite a lot of subsequent work related to that. And and obviously the aspect relating to injury of veterinary surgeons is an an important consequence for difficult horse behaviour. But are there other sort of factors that are related to difficult horse behaviour? I think maybe we're looking, we it's easy for us to focus on that in a, in a very narrow um, perspective but how do you see the influence of horses with difficult behavior in in terms of a more general uh, uh, horizon yeah so I, I think injury to human beings has got to be the most important factor at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, and that is mainly vets but of course it's also horse owners nurses you know veterinary technicians I think after that, probably the second most important thing would be injury to horses, um, which does occur as well. And then after that, I think it's, you know, how things change. So whether you modify your investigation or your treatment plan because of a horse's behaviour, and does that horse get the optimal outcome because you may have modified what you did with it? Um, And then finally, I also do speak to owners who say that they're more reluctant to seek future veterinary care because of either concerns about injury or because of how stressed they feel their horse is undertaking that. So I think having that really good relationship between vet owner and horse and and low stress veterinary care is really important. Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting point and I think highlights maybe the, it's quite easy to quantify the, the aspect about, you know, how 
often we encounter difficult situations or difficult horse and things, but maybe some of those other attributes are a little bit uh, more difficult to quantify is, is, is another factor as well, I guess, isn't it? Like you say, um, in relation to how that might change the, the treatment for a horse and things is often is often not maybe as clear cut as, as, uh, as other aspects. That's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And there is some work in small animals now showing that companion animal owners are more reluctant to seek veterinary care if they perceive that their dog or cat finds it stressful. But as you say, in terms of modifying the approach, that would be really hard to look at. Great. So I think we'll move on a little bit to discuss what you did with this study in particular. So could you give us a, a bit of a description of the, the methods you used in this study um, and, and how you went about that? Yeah, so it was quite simple, really. It was just an online questionnaire with 26 questions and it was distributed electronically. So it went in two editions of eBeaver, which I have to thank um, Beaver for allowing me to do that. Also distributed through some of the veterinary social media and we have the, the the Dick Vet, we have a practice newsletter. So an email goes out to our referring practices and it was included as a link in that as well. Fantastic. And then a little bit more information about the, the actual questionnaire itself. How did you um, split that up? What sort of topics did you particularly focus on? Yeah, so we split that up into five different components. The first one was the general demographic data. Secondly, the prevalence of difficult horses and unwanted behaviours that veterinarians were seeing. Then we looked at injuries to veterinarians, the, you know, the frequency and the consequences of these. And then we asked vets how they approach dealing with difficult cases. And then finally, we asked them um, and tested them on their knowledge of learning theory. Fantastic. And I think just worth touching on on briefly um, what sort of statistical analysis you, you plan to do um, with the output for that and maybe what particular um, uh, areas you're going to look at potentially associations or, or influences of. Yeah, so a lot of the analyses was just descriptive statistics. But then one thing we wanted to try and work out was the frequency with which some of these unwanted behaviours were occurring. So to do that, we converted the ordered categories to a single number. So we asked the vets, you know, how frequently they um, saw an unwanted behaviour as every day, a few times each week, a few times each month, each year, or very infrequently. And we're basing it on 20 working days per month. So every day it became 20 and a few times each month became five and so on. Mm-hmm. And we also asked the vets how many horses they were seeing each month. So we could then work it out on a percentage of cases that were seen, roughly how many cases were presented with these unwanted behaviours. And then finally, we wanted to compare the frequency of some of these behaviours to years working with horses, years qualified as a vet. So we just use a Kruskal Wallace to determine these. Perfect. So I think that's a good time to to lead us into the results. So perhaps a, a good starting point is is just to discuss um, how many respondents you got and, and maybe get a little bit more information about the, the type of respondents you received as well. Yeah, so we got a nice response number. I'd say it's fairly average for these types of surveys. And um, we had 220 completed responses, but we excluded 28 of those because they were based outside of the UK. 
and we excluded a further 27 as the vets reported treating less than 20 horses a month, which made it harder to work out how frequently they might be seeing unwanted behaviours. Mm-hmm. So that left 168 in the final analysis. And then in terms of um, the, the breakdown of the demographic of the vets, 73% of those reported that they were in 100% equine practice and 79% said that they were seeing more than 50 horses a month. So we're certainly happy that we're asking vets who were seeing lots of cases. Um, 63% were female and 52% said they're in ambulatory practice with a further 40% saying they're in mixed practice. So only a small percentage of those in um, specific racehorse or sports horse practices. There was a good geographic spread up and down the country. Scotland was slightly overrepresented, which is mm-hmm. probably because we sent the e-newsletter out to our referring practices. And then in terms of what they were saying, again, 51% said that they saw a mixture of pleasure, sport and race horses, and 40% said they were really just seeing pleasure horses great so a nice mixed bunch of uh, of respondents so i think the the first sort of key question really is how uh, often the respondents were encountering difficult horses um and and i guess for what that means to them yeah absolutely so we left that up to them as to what they classified as difficult we didn't specify that um, but 95% of respondents said they were seeing difficult horses on at least a few times each month basis. And over 50% said they were seeing them at least a few times each week. So it's certainly not uncommon that vets are coming across horses that they find challenging. Mm-hmm. And I guess one thing you sort of hinted at, and we maybe come back to a little bit later in some of the other discussion is um, in the results you mentioned that there was a trend although it wasn't statistically significant for reduced encountering of difficult horse behavior with increasing experience of the vet um, and just be interested to see what your thoughts are on that and whether that's a it is a real trend and, and it's just maybe down to the numbers that it wasn't statistically significant or um uh you know whether there is a a background reason you think that 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 might be the case as well Yeah, so my thought is that it probably is a real trend. Um, And certainly if you're to look at the mean values of percentage of difficult horses, um, as years working with horses, the mean value reduces from the the lowest category, which was less than two years. And we did say working with horses rather than graduated. I should probably explain that. So that if someone had been in small animal practice for five years, that wouldn't actually be included. It would just be the the years working um, with horses. Okay. So the mean value definitely decreases with more years experience. But what's interesting is if you look at the the figure, the 95% confidence intervals are actually much narrower by the time you get horses, which are 10 to 20 or more than 20 years with working with horses. Vets, sorry, not horses. Um, (laughs) But if you look at the vets which have less than two years experience working with horses, they have massive wide confidence intervals. So I think that's the reason it wasn't significant because you're having a a lot of variation between those which are not seeing many difficult horses and those which are seeing an awful lot. And you're not seeing the same amount of variation with increasing experience. Great. That's really interesting, I think. And uh, as as we hinted at, I think it's a, a, 
some difficulties in in relation to uh, into sort of respondent differences maybe in how people quantify a difficult horse and and those sort of attributes are, are quite difficult to account for I guess aren't they yeah absolutely it is just personal opinion um at the end of the day so that is one of the limitations of the study uh, so I think worth next moving on to uh, the specific sort of unwanted behaviours that we we might uh, encounter, um, and uh, and I guess to discuss which of those were were most common. Yeah, so the most common unwanted behaviour was horses which are bargy, um, and for any American listeners, that's horses that are pushy, mm-hmm. where you don't use that term in America. Um, so that was 95% of respondents said they were seeing bargy horses on at least a monthly basis. And then the two next most common, which were both 92% of respondents, were horses that won't stand still during clinical examination or treatment and horses that were needle shy. So they were the three most common, but it's probably also worth looking at what I would classify as the most dangerous unwanted behaviours. Mm-hmm. So horses that with a hind foot was seen by 67% of respondents on at least a monthly basis. Striking with a forefoot was 50% and rearing was 49%. So they're the ones that would really concern me. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're exactly right that there's, you know, some of them sound fairly, you know, they can sound quite innocuous, uh, but, you know, certainly some very, some very serious ones in there and quite, quite startling, although maybe not that surprising really how, how, uh, how commonly encountered those, those specific behaviours seem to be. Um, and, and I think they're, they're very good descriptions and quite vivid really. I'm sure every time you, you know, when I look at it and see the, uh, the description bargy or pushy, there's always a couple of horses that maybe come to mind straight away with those sort of descriptions. So I think, uh, um, uh, it's definitely interesting to see those, uh, 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 distributions across different, different attributes. Yeah, absolutely. And whilst we said it's very personal opinion on whether a horse is difficult or not, actually, you know, if a horse is bargy, you could still agree there's some difference in opinion there. But if a horse kicks or rears, there should be good agreement on these things, shouldn't there? So Mm. a lot of these unwanted behaviours, and particularly the dangerous ones, we know are occurring frequently. And you looked again at the influence of experience potentially on individual unwanted behaviors did you find anything different when you looked at that level in in more detail yeah so if you look at individual unwanted behaviors from horses the majority of these did reduce with an increasing experience of the vet the ones which weren't statistically significant were actually the ones that are potentially not related to the horse veterinarian interaction so for example horses that are clipper shy are probably exposed to clippers outside of the veterinary environment. Um, those that refuse to load either into a lorry or, you know, they're they're also the same ones that often refuse to load into stocks, um, and potentially horses that are difficult to catch. So, uh, yeah, the majority of ones such as being bargy or pushing, pushing, not standing still, needle shy, head shy, kicking, striking, rearing, and biting, um, were the ones which were significant, and they're the ones which it's very easy for the vet to have an influence on whether these behaviours occur or not. 
Yeah, so I think that I guess that's uh, an interesting finding, and maybe gives maybe gives some hope that actually there is something that we can, you know, there is an influence that the the vet themselves can can potentially have an in, an influence on. I think is a is a really positive take home that you can maybe imply from from that finding. Yeah, absolutely, and I think one of my favourite sayings is, "You get the behaviour you reinforce, not the one you want." And I know we'll come on to talk about learning theory a little bit more in a minute, but actually a lot of these behaviours, um, regardless of why the horse was motivated in the first place, are actually inadvertently reinforced by vets. And I don't mean to blame vets in any way um, for that, but sometimes just recognising that you're actually training a horse to rear or kick and then modifying what you're doing with them to train them to stand still, calm and relaxed as an alternative is definitely the way forward for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of horse-related injuries and the occurrence of sort of dangerous situations, what did you find in your study about that? Yeah, so this is really concerning. And again, you know, I mentioned Tim Parkin's study looked on at this from a more epidemiological point of view and looked at risk factors and things. Um, but we were finding similar aspects. So we just asked them simply how many times they'd been injured directly by a horse that they were treating in the last five years. And 81% of them said at least once. Mm. Um, And that was either 15 or 16% said they had one, two or three injuries in the last five years. 9% said they had 10 injuries. And one person actually said that they'd had more than 30 injuries, which I have to question whether that person is in the right profession or not. (laughs) Um, If you're having that many injuries. Um, in total, there was 579 injuries reported from 168 vets that completed the survey and were seeing more than 20 horses a month. And again, you know, we didn't specify what an injury was. So you may say, well, you know, it could be there in minimal bruising or, you know, it may not be that significant. But what we did do was we asked them about treatment. And of these 579 injuries, required a hospital visit, 11% required a visit to their doctor, 16% required some time off work. And for me, the most concerning um, statistic was 37% reported some continued discomfort or loss of function as a result of these injuries. Yeah, quite dramatic, uh, dramatic numbers. I think certainly, uh, uh, and and like you say, the the indication that potentially some of those do have uh, lasting consequences, which I think is you know is not hard to imagine, uh, is is a little bit scary, really. So um, uh, I think absolutely, uh, as you say, sort of continues the trend that we've seen in other in other studies that, that there is a, a, a you know a real concern about some of the the injury rates around. And, and in terms of how that related to dangerous working situations, because obviously sometimes it is unpredictable when when sort of adverse things happen. But um, I guess that's an important thing you've you've quantified is maybe how often uh, people feel like they're in a d- dangerous situation. What did you find about that? Yeah, so we asked them how frequently they felt they were putting themselves in in dangerous situations, um, and it was really frequently. It was 92% of vets thought they were doing that on at least a monthly basis. And again, that fits in with difficult horses and the injury rates that we're seeing. Yeah, sure. Um, One thing you discuss a little bit 
uh, after that was um, methods of restraint for difficult horses. Um, what sort of techniques were people, people using most routinely? Yeah, so for this, we actually gave respondents a list um, of different restraint methods. And we said, would you classify this as very helpful, or sorry, very useful, fairly useful, unhelpful, very unhelpful or useless? And then we classified them as being valued if they were either very or fairly useful. Um, and the most popular one, understandably, was sedation, which 99% of people felt was you, they valued it. Um, but of course, we need to consider the amount of vets which were seeing needle shy horses. You know, 92% were seen on at least a monthly basis. They were seeing needle shy horses. So mm. potentially getting the sedation in may be a dangerous situation. And then, of course, there are aspects such as endoscopy or nerve blocking, whereby you can't as easily sedate a horse because it's going to have an influence on your results. So after that, the next most popular methods of restraint were a nose twitch and a neck twitch. Um, and then we went through lots of other physical measures of restraint. Um, yes. And that was the main emphasis really on this, that they were reliant upon physical restraint. And in terms of you know, what they didn't classify as useful, it tended to be techniques which were based on learning theory. So negative reinforcement was 70%. Positive reinforcement was 20%. However, we should say that using food as a distraction was 39%. Um, and I've done an awful lot as have a couple of other people trying to teach vets about learning theory over the past couple of years. So it may be if we ran this study again, mm. we would get some different results. Yeah, I think so. So that that leads us nicely on to uh, discuss a little bit more about the the learning theory. So um, you investigated that a little bit with your with your questionnaire too, um, and obviously it's worth putting in the context. I think that the the survey was conducted in sort of twenty fourteen um, is maybe useful for people to know. I think that's right, isn't it, Gemma? Yeah, yeah, it was a couple of years ago now um, that it went out. Um, so at that point, how were respondents perceiving their understanding of how horses learn? Yeah, so I think equine vets are probably quite similar to horse owners um, because 78% of them thought they had you know, a good understanding of how horses learn and could apply that knowledge. And I know in horse owners, um, if you ask them things about horses, they think they have a good understanding regardless mm -hmm. of whether they do or not. Um, and so, yeah, I guess... Uh, you then go on to uh, to test some of that knowledge a little bit in in the questionnaire, but I think one one thing that might be useful at this point is if, um, particularly for some of the um, the terms that you uh, investigated in in the discussion, it might be useful to just give a little summary of of the understanding of the terminology and and how that might apply. Would maybe be useful for sort of further discussion here. Would you be able to do that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So. Learning theory describes the processes through which all animals learn um, and we split it down to different levels. So the most basic level is non-associative learning. You either habituate to a stimulus, you get used to it, or you become more sensitised to it. The first form of associative learning is classical conditioning. Most people understand that as Pavlov's dogs, hence why it's also called Pavlovian conditioning. So this is all about when you predict it, when you're presented with a stimulus, you can predict what's going to happen next. In Pavlov's case, he would ring a bell and then feed the dogs. 
And then after several trials, he would ring a bell. And even though there was no food present, the dogs would start to salivate and they would show positive anticipatory responses to food. So I guess one thing to remember with classical conditioning is that you don't have any control over your response. It's just forming associations. So your physiological and emotional responses occur when triggered. Mm -hmm. The next level is operant conditioning. And this is all about how an animal learns to operate within their environment. So whenever we use the term reinforcement, we talk about making a behavior more likely to occur. Um, whenever we use the word punishment, we're making it less likely. And then the words positive and negative are the ones where people get confused about. But they're used in the mathematical sense. They're used as in addition or subtraction of a stimulus. So if we think about the different quadrants, then positive reinforcement is the addition of something pleasant to reinforce a behavior to make it more likely. So commonly we would use things like clicker training um, or food rewards with horses, whereby you said the click can say, yep, that's the exact timing of the behavior that I want. Maybe mm -hmm. standing calm and relaxed um, for a sham injection. And then you give the food. Negative reinforcement, of course, just means the subtraction or removal of something. So pressure release is the best way to train this. And a good example would be a horse that's needle shy, that every time a horse goes to raise the vein, the horse throws their head up, the vet lets go of the vein, even if it's for a fraction of a second, that removal of pressure just reinforces the behavior of throwing the head up. So over time, the horse throws its head up higher and faster, and then they start to rear up. And this is how you can train a horse to rear um, very, very easily. Whereas the other side of that, if you were to potentially put your hand on their wither and the horse stands still and doesn't move and take your hand away again, then put your hand on the neck a bit closer, remove your hand before they move, you're now starting to reward the behaviour of standing calm and relaxed when you touch their neck instead. So negative reinforcement is really important for vets to understand. And then in terms of punishment, positive punishment just means the addition of something. So that could be shouting, striking, kicking a horse. Could also just be growling or shouting at them. Um, and then negative punishment means the subtraction of something. So it would usually be taking the horse's feed or water away from them. And the aim is that you're reducing the likelihood of behaviours occurring, but it's actually not very successful usually with horses. Perfect. That's a really, a really helpful run through. And I guess, as you've alluded to, um, with really good examples from each, I think probably, although they're all um, uh, sort of individual quadrants, there's probably particular ones that are most most applicable to uh, uh, to our situations, or maybe the ones we need to, to focus on. So I think the examples you've given are, um, are really useful for, for highlighting that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I guess that leads on to sort of close off your results section uh, when you actually tested people's understanding of, um, of the learning theory, uh, how did, how did the respondents fare in, in that? Yeah, so, so quite varied, but unfortunately not very well overall. And part of this may be that they, it was the knowledge of the terminology that was poor rather than the actual innate knowledge of, of how to handle horses. But Mm -hmm. I would suggest if they didn't understand the terminology, but they understood the techniques, they wouldn't be quite as reliant on physical restraint um, as they were in the other studies. So if we were to look at the answers they got right and wrong, um, habituation, 79% of vets said that they knew what that meant 
And then when we gave them a scenario and said, is this the correct um, terminology for this scenario? 97% of vets got that right. So they were good with habituation. A similar thing with classical conditioning. So only 57% of vets said that they knew what classical conditioning was. But of those that knew, 91% got the answer right. And I think it was an important part of the study that we only looked um, whether they got it right or not if they said they knew the answer. Because if they said that they didn't know the answer, then it's a little bit unfair to include that in your results. Mm-hmm. Then when we get onto operant conditioning, this is where people didn't do very well. So positive reinforcement, as we've said, things like giving food to reward the correct response, um, 84% of vets said that they knew what it meant, but actually only 19% got the correct answer on the scenario. Negative reinforcement, again, 80% of them thought they knew what this was, but only 33% were able to correctly identify whether the scenario was right or not. And then in terms of punishment, they were less confident on their knowledge of this, probably because I used the term positive and negative. But with mm-hmm. positive punishment, only 38% said that they knew what it was. And even then, of those, only 43% got it correct. With negative punishment, um, less than half, it was 47% knew what said they knew what the correct answer was. But actually, only 67% of those were to get it correct. So certainly a gap in, in learning here for these vets. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, as you say, the the the, the terminology potentially is a uh, a consideration for that, and I think uh, probably for a lot of people, the the work that you've done in uh, often in sort of collaboration with Beaver has probably been uh, very helpful in in explaining some of that. And as you said earlier, potentially the the findings might be a little bit different if you were to rerun that now, really based on that sort of very well publicised. Uh, um, uh, sort of action by by yourself and and the team at Beaver. Yeah, and I have to say a massive thank you um, to Beaver for all the support over the previous few years. Um, they've been fantastic, and I do actually have a plan um, to run this exact same survey again, maybe ten years, maybe fifteen years, or maybe I should do it every ten years, <laughs> um, and actually see because I sus- I'd be very confident that the level of understanding of learning theories improved i think you'll see more people using learning theory as restraint rather than physical restraint but of course the million dollar question is are we seeing a reduced rate of injuries to vets as well Mm -hmm. Uh, so just to talk a bit more generally with the paper in in context um, I think one thing we've we've slightly touched on, um, but worth but worth specifically discussing is um, whether some of these difficult behaviours are specific to a veterinary context that actually don't really cause much of a problem to the owner, or whether we think actually the horses that are, are difficult for the vet often are are the ones where they've they're also exhibiting potentially challenging behaviour for the owner as well. I don't know if you have any impressions on that. Yeah, I think there's a real mixture in that. Um, So I think lots of them are problematic for the owner as well, particularly things like horses that are bargy. You know, they tend to be bargy in lots of different scenarios. Mm -hmm. Um, Potentially horses that don't like oral medication, they may be difficult to worm. I think the specific, the context-specific ones to vets are things like horses that are needle shy. You know, and I'm sure we all know horses which are an absolute dream and a sweetheart for the owner to do anything with. But as soon as a vet goes near them, um, they turn into an absolute nightmare. What I would say is that 
Horses that have been trained to stand still as a habit also tend to be calm as a habit. So these are this is something, you know, that if we can get owners to teach horses how to stand still mm-hmm. and how to respond to lead rope pressures, not to follow people when they start walking. Um, you know, people have say, if I walk, my horse walks, if I stop, they stop. But I think that can get you into a lot of problems as well because the horse's cue for walking is to follow your legs and then you tie them up and walk away from them, which can be confusing. So just teaching them that they stand still unless they're given a cue to walk. Um, can make a massive difference to how easy these horses are for vets to deal with. Okay, um, and that I guess highlights an important issue that there is there's quite a lot of stakeholders involved in that interaction. So obviously we uh, have sort of the vets and the horses themselves, but then obviously the owners and other practitioners, farriers and things like that all influence these sort of behaviours and, and situations. Um, I guess one of the one of the challenges as a result of the maybe the specificity of the behaviours for vets is then who, you know, where does the responsibility fall a little bit that, you know, if the the horse isn't exhibiting problematic behaviours for the owner, um, uh, it's maybe more difficult uh, for us to to try and influence that. I think obviously when there is a situation where there's a, a negative impact for the owner as well and they're more invested in doing that, whereas sometimes it can be, you know, it almost feels like the onus on is on is on us to to sort of resolve those situations. You know, if you've got a, a horse where you're trying to examine its hind limbs, and it's very very difficult to to get you to touch the hind limbs. So, I just wondered how you how you go about sort of handling those situations, and um, you know, it can feel very difficult when you need to try and try and resolve that in in there and in the moment, and whether you know is that something that needs to be a more of a long-term goal and and how you go about managing that that type of situation? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, if there's one bit of advice I would give, particularly to younger vets, because these are the ones that struggle with it, it's never be afraid to walk away from a situation. Mm -hmm. You know, if the situation is not safe um, or if it's particularly stressful for the horse and owner, just saying we need to do more work and we can come back to this you know there are very few things that you have to deal with in that moment and if it is something that you have to deal with then potentially getting in a you know a nurse that can help you or another experienced colleague can be really useful um as you say i think there are certain things you know the horse that's an absolute dream until the vet goes to inject it um unfortunately that horse probably has had a very negative interaction with a vet before which is where this has come from so there's a little bit of responsibility on the vet's part you know there's not a lot that owners can do to retrain these horses without the vet Mm -hmm. so i think vets using learning theory and um you know getting horses much happier with vet care is well worth it and i do find most owners are actually happy to engage with this there's also the other side of the coin whereby, you know, you go out and the horse is difficult to inject, but not horrendous. You manage it. Um, but on question a bit further, you find out that actually this owner is struggling with this horse. And there are lots of different aspects that they struggle with. So you've kind of seen the tip of the iceberg. And that's where I think working with an accredited behaviourist can be really useful. So um, I did the the series with Beaver on Don't Break Your Vet, which is on YouTube. So I think there's some great videos on there for people to mm. be able to employ some of these techniques that, you know, for 95% of horses will work quickly, certainly quicker than trying to restrain them. And you have a less stressed horse and owner. But I think if you've got the more challenging horses um, and, you know, you're not confident doing these techniques, you don't have the experience, 
then at least in the UK, if you look on the website for the Animal Behaviour and Training Council, um, they have a list of accredited equine behaviourists and sometimes being happy to work with them and the owner um, can really help a lot of these horses. I think that's really, really great. And uh, I think very helpful of you to to mention those resources for for vets and then and then maybe um, options as well for, for where we can we can direct people to, to try and resolve more difficult situations. And I think uh, certainly the the information that you've the YouTube series and things that you've got, I think, sure, uh, as we've highlighted, it doesn't take very much for the horses to learn how to rear in response to um sort of having a raising the vein and things but i think the other the other side of the coin with that is that it, as you sort of alluded to that they 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 can potentially have that behavior resolve quite quickly as well because they are sort of quite acutely sensitive to that to that sort of conditioning so i think um um uh, yeah, i guess that sounds like that's your sort of experience with that really that a lot of them um can be resolved quite quickly when when you sort of know the right cues of how to go about that yeah absolutely i think it's amazing how quickly the majority of horses um are retrained as i say you get the behavior you reinforce not the one you want so i i now see a very different population of horses certainly locally we have a lot of great vets which are really good with these techniques so if i'm going out to see a horse because it's needle shy it's because there's a lot more going on in terms of this horse's behavior Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not quick to respond. But for the majority, you're looking at 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe two minutes for a slightly more difficult horse. And I think what's nice as well is it really gets the owners on board with a lot of this rather than thinking the horse is being naughty or stubborn or dominant, you know, and sometimes the owners say, oh, oh, he's always like that and that's just him. Whereas actually when they see a vet, which is able to have the horse stand calm and relax for an injection within 60 seconds, it really opens up their eyes that actually a lot of these behaviours are being inadvertently reinforced. So that makes them more open to working on the other problems that they may have with that horse. Great, yeah, and I think that's that's a really important point to highlight really, isn't it, that it, there's an, that opens up another avenue really for um, for addressing addressing other issues. So I, I think... Uh, um, hopefully that gives gives people some useful resources to to look into and and um, and as we said sort of places to turn to for for more challenging situations where uh, it might be a, a more long term goal to to try and address things. Um, one thing I guess that you um, uh, certainly being at the university is, is a consideration is is how this fits for uh, undergraduates and I think certainly. Um, is a factor for particularly for students that aren't uh, you know maybe don't have much experience with horses and and, um, maybe that can sometimes be something that puts people off pursuing equine practice is that is that they you know they they don't feel comfortable around horses and I wondered what your um, thoughts or experience was with um, trying to sort of assist undergraduates with that and and maybe try and um, uh, uh, help with managing these situations so that you know particularly that transition where you've highlighted in in your paper that maybe the the younger um, uh, practitioners find it more challenging um, so any experience you've got on that would be really interesting to hear about yeah I think it's absolutely fundamental um, that this is all integrated into the undergraduate curriculum because it really is a day one skill 
Um, and funny enough, this was, as I say, part of my MSc, and another part of my MSc was actually looking at undergraduate students. So we took the fourth year students and we um, gave them a questionnaire with some five video scenarios in and said things like, you go out to give this horse its vaccine, the owner warns you that you've got to be quick because he's needle shy. And then Mm -hmm. I showed a video of a vet walking in, going to grasp a a skin twitch and the horse rearing up. Um, And we asked them lots of things, but I guess some of the key things were we said, how safe or how big do you think the risk for injury is in this scenario? How confident are you that you could vaccinate this horse? And what was the other one? I can't remember. Sorry, I might get back to that in a second. We have some three things. Um, It was how confident they would be, the perception of risk, and whether they'd actually be able to achieve what they were aiming to do or not. So we did that first of all, and then I gave them a single 45-minute lecture on learning theory. And then we asked them, we showed them exact same videos and scenarios a week later. And, of course, they're all more confident and said there was reduced risk of injury and, you know, they'd be able to do it all. But actually we did a delayed post-test as well. So that was undertaken. Um, It depended because I wanted to do it at the end of their equine rotation. So it was about Mm -hmm. six months for most of the students when they did it. And what I suspected was that even though it was maybe more more confidence than at the baseline, it would be less when they'd actually been in the hospital and seen, you know, how difficult it can be to work with some of these horses. But it was actually the other way around. Um, a week after the lecture, they were more confident. But after being in the equine hospital, they were even more confident. And it's interesting you say about the kind of students which aren't as horsey and aren't as experienced when they come into vet school because I also left them some free comments at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And it amazed me how many students said that um, having watched the videos, they were then presented with a case where they had to give a horse oral meds or take its temperature or, you know, do some, maybe give it IM depacillin at midnight. And there was just two mm. students on the yard. And they said, actually, this horse was really dangerous, but we use your techniques. And within a couple of minutes, it stood calmly and we were able to undertake this. And from that, some of them said, I have their little horse experience. I was quite fearful and this has given me confidence. But actually, there were also some students which said, I've been around horses all my life and I can't believe I hadn't realised this. And now I've done this. I've then used this for some of the horses that we have at home and such like. So, yeah, across the board, it was it was really well received. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, a really positive uh, uh take home really for uh to sort of round things off i think it could can be a bit uh uh you know as we said a bit of a uh uh distressing thing to talk about sometimes with sort of discussing injuries and things but i think certainly the the um some of the outcomes that you've or demonstrated uh, in in other aspects and and uh and how valuable some of the applying different techniques can be i think uh, does put a, a very positive uh, uh outlook on things I um, just wondered what your um, sort of uh, vision is for sort of the future of this work and, 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 uh, and, you know, is there any areas where you think particularly there needs to be more research done? Um, be interested to sort of use that as a, as, as a final point of discussion. Yeah, so I've just submitted my PhD, um, which was investigating stress in horses undergoing veterinary care and the development of low-stress handling techniques. And I think, again, that's really the tip of the iceberg. So 
anecdotally, um, I get a lot of success with these techniques. I now have a lot of vets that have contacted me and, you know, I'm aware lots of other people are getting success with them, but we mm -hmm. really could do with some more evidence behind them. And I also think on the one hand, you know, we're using learning theory to modify the horse's behavior, but probably the next area which we really need to look at is how a horse perceives things such as an injection and whether we can actually do things to make it less stressful. So one of the studies in my PhD was using classical counter conditioning to alter their perception of a nerve block. And, you know, the people that scored the horses using QBA were blinded and they scored the horses as having a more positive, effective state, i.e. happier horses than those mm -hmm. that didn't receive classical counter conditioning. But again, that's just one study. And I think there's an absolute, you know, there's so many areas that we could think about how we can make it more pleasant for the horse and how we can modify the horse's behaviour um, to be compliant with veterinary care. And hopefully all of that will result in reduced injury rates over a, a period of time. That's really great, um, Gemma. So I think uh, I think that's a really a good place for us to uh, to round things off. So I just want to thank you very much again for um, uh, taking part in the in the podcast and and also more sort of generally, I guess, for your hard work on on some of these subjects and and producing those resources, which I think uh, uh, if people haven't already uh, uh, had chance to to look at those, then hopefully this has been an opportunity to sort of highlight those for them. So thank you very much again for your for your time on that. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.